Hi, welcome to Bulletproof Women. I'm your host, Gwen. Join me as I curate the real-life experiences of some of the strongest women I've met, heard of, or read about. For some reason, I knew something was wrong with my body. I just didn't think it was cancer. When I first realized it, after falling in love with a woman for the first time, it was an amazing feeling. I was very, very depressed. I went through a severe depression for about a year. This podcast aims to bring the rich stories and experiences of everyday women among us, the unsung heroines from our lives, past, present, and future. Don't let cancer bring you down. Stay on top and fight it. And that's what I did. I fought it every step of the way. I felt privileged, really, to learn that I have a totally different perspective of this world that we live in. Thank God, with my faith and the help of the community, I didn't get consumed for more than a year. Strong decision. Any decision, you strong. One decision, Listen for fun or listen to learn. Hear what they have to share with everyone or tell us a story yourself. What in life has made us bulletproof? Hey everyone, you're listening to the Bulletproof Women podcast, the show that brings you the real and raw life experiences of some extraordinary women. I'm your host, Gwen. And I've reached out to some amazing women who have so graciously offered to share their experiences with us so that we all learn and know that we're not alone. If you're new to my podcast, welcome. Thank you for choosing to listen in, and I hope you enjoy my content. Before I begin, I'd like to thank all of you listeners for supporting me and giving me feedback on my episodes. I really appreciate your support in what I'm trying to do here, which is use this platform and this podcast to share a strengthening message and have a positive impact. So, thank you. I hope you're all doing well and safe in the current crisis we're all going through. Summer is rolling in nicely here in Ontario, Canada, but we still can't enjoy the outdoors as much as I'd like to. This year has been exceptionally hard for every single one of us. I feel like every other day, there's a new challenge a new trauma, a new hurdle to overcome. From pandemic to protests, this year will probably go down in history as a sort of modern day revolution. In today's episode, we will revisit my chat with my friend, Melissa, and will dive into the second part of her experience. In part one, she spoke openly about the struggles she faced with depression and raising her rebellious teenage daughter, V who was struggling with her own mental health issues unknown to Melissa at that time. The last episode came with a cautionary note that I will have to repeat here today. Firstly, both parts of Melissa's experience cover the life of her children. To protect their identities, we will be keeping their names anonymous and will only refer to them by their initials. Secondly, Melissa's story today covers extremely sensitive topics such as postpartum depression, child abuse, 
dealing with foster care situations and navigating the convoluted red tape of Children's Aid Society in Ontario, or CAS. This experience and content is very heavy and may be difficult to hear. For some, it may trigger painful emotions. Listener discretion is advised. We ended the last episode with Melissa finding out that her 17-year-old daughter, V, was pregnant and she wanted to once again move out from her mother's home and get her own place with her boyfriend to raise her baby. After years of facing so many tantrums and fallouts from the mistakes made, Melissa could now recognize the pitfalls a mile away. She wanted with all her heart to advise her daughter against it. But once again, she knew that when V made up her mind on something, it was almost futile to try and change it. Getting an apartment seemed very important to V. Keeping her boyfriend as the father figure in her baby's life seemed very important too. So Melissa decided it was better to be supportive and be there for her daughter than to try to push her away all over again. In the last few weeks leading up to December 2016, Melissa and her family were living happily together. Excitement was in the air. The family not only had a Caribbean holiday vacation coming up, but they were also busy with the preparations for the arrival of V's baby, reaching out to family and friends with children who had outgrown their baby stuff, collecting cribs, playpens, bottles, toys, carriers, strollers, and whatever else they could to help keep the staggering cost of baby items down for the new parents. In the meantime, V had been making her own preparations, finding an apartment, booking a moving date, and gathering people around her to help. Within the few weeks before they left for vacation, V was all packed up once again and ready to move to her own apartment. Melissa and her family left for their Caribbean holiday in December 2016, with the understanding that when they return, V will be moving into her own apartment. Melissa was now seasoned in spotting red flags for every decision put before her. She felt that V was making a mistake. Even more worrisome to Melissa, who got out of an abusive relationship herself, she could now notice the telltale signs of abuse in her daughter's relationship. But V was adamant and in love, making it once again impossible for Melissa to push or reason with her daughter on the benefits of staying home with her family. So now we're gathering things for her to prepare for this baby. And so she gets the apartment. So on December 23rd, which is my birthday, I remember us not having such a good time because she wanted me to help her move her things out that night when they got the keys. And I said, look, it's my birthday and I'm not going to spend my birthday moving you. Like move when you come back. We're leaving tomorrow. I have so much to get done. When you come back, you can move because the baby was not due until March, sometime in March, mid-March. And I said, you have a while yet. So why are you rushing this? When you come back, you can, you know, you'll move in and whatever. And she was insistent. They got the place she wanted. She was in love. And so she ended up, I think, getting her friend and, and whoever to come and they kind of moved her stuff. 
her stuff was moved, but she stayed with us because we were leaving the next morning. And the agreement was when she came back from the trip, she would move out back into her own apartment and get herself ready for the baby. At this point, I have no issues. You want to make a life. It's your life. But just so you know, you can live here and we will help you raise your baby. Because by now I'm starting to see signs of him being a little bit controlling. There's things I'm seeing that I'm not liking, but no concrete evidence that that's going on. And so I said, okay, just please find something that's close by so I can come and help you when the baby is born. And so now we're prepping. On January 5th, 2017, Melissa, V, and the rest of the family returned back to Canada from a wonderfully relaxing vacation in the Caribbean. Melissa had timed the trip well in advance, knowing that V's due date was not until March and making sure to be back in Canada just as her third trimester began. However, the day after they arrived, V called out to Melissa with some troubling news. And so we leave on the trip, we go home, we have a grand time, we come back to Canada on, I believe, January 5th or 7th or something like that. We come back the first week of Jan. And the next day she said to me, mom, I just don't feel very well today. And I said, what? What do you mean you don't feel well? I said, okay, just, you know, maybe relax. She goes to the bathroom and she says to me after mom, come. And I said, what? And uh, she was still on the toilet. She started describing some symptoms and it sounded like the mucus plug. And I said, okay, it could be your mucus plug, but it's only January and your baby's not due till March. So I said, well, you need to call the doctor and, and let's go make a trip there. To be on the safe side, let's go to Etobicoke. So we went to the hospital. We went to the maternity. We called ahead and they said, just come check it out. And so they hook her up. They keep her for a little bit that evening. And they said, yes, her amniotic fluid is leaking. And it seems as though the mucus plug is gone and the baby is ready, very low and ready. But she's not ready. The baby's ready, but she's not ready. And that baby needs to stay in there as long as he or she can. The next week goes by in a swirl of doctor visits and ultrasounds. The doctors advised V that although she was only 32 weeks pregnant, V's little baby was ready to be born anytime soon. Reeling from the information of an imminent birth and all the well-known risks associated with it, Melissa, under doctor's orders, had V on complete bed rest, doing everything she could to keep that little one in as long as possible. The only travel allowed were the daily trips to the hospital for several hours of monitoring. This was their routine for two more weeks, at which point the doctors had decided to schedule an induction. Even after everything that had happened, Melissa was the only one that V had in her corner. The baby's father had, till then, not taken any initiative in the prenatal care. Melissa was the one to make sure V and her baby were always safe and healthy. On 25th Jan 2017, V was told they may have to induce her that day. Her baby was coming and she was going to be a mother but V was nowhere near ready for the monumental challenge she was about to face, and she knew it. 
It was the 25th of January. It was in the morning. And that day, the doctor said, look, the baby's not necessarily being distressed, but his heart is not where it should be. And the doctor said to her, look, it's a slow day today in the maternity ward. Why don't you stay? I know you're coming back in on Monday, but we've got everything here. You should stay. And I remember her and I having an argument because she was like, you just want to control and have me have this baby, but I will need to go home. I need to go get a sweater. I want to go shop. She steps out of the room. She calls the baby's dad. And at this point, their reality is sinking in that they're about to deliver a child. And so they're freaking out thinking, no, we don't want to, not today. Give us Monday. We'll come back Monday, but not today. So I asked the doctor, if this was your baby and this was you, what would you do? And she said, I would stay here. And she said to my daughter, look, you can go down into the elevator and be walking to the car and you can have a mishap. You've come so far, your baby is currently alive and healthy and you could risk it all. And all of this seven months would have been for nothing. And she said, no, I'm not ready. No, it's not coming now. No, we'll come back on Monday. So we left. I was upset. I was disappointed. Um, and I'm talking to her and I'm saying, look, if they didn't feel there was a need. The doctor wouldn't have encouraged you to stay. You should listen to them. And at this point, I think it's sinking into her. Okay, that's probably the best thing. On our way home, the hospital called her. She sees the number and uh, we take the call and they said, look, there's some things that we're seeing here on these tests that we don't like. You need to come back. And we said, okay. And I said to her, look, get your bags. We'll go order some food because when you get there, they're not going to let you eat. We got home. We ate. I took her back. It was myself, my mom, and the baby's dad that was there. Um, because I'm a very active at this point, you know, because she's not really absorbing anything. And the baby's dad is in a whole different zone. So they said, look, there's going to be a team of about seven people for the baby when he is born. They said there's going to be 12 to 13 of us. There's going to be a team of about seven for him. And on your side, there's going to be another team of about six people to look after you. So it's going to get really crowded. And then they start prepping slowly for delivery as their contractions are coming. And they bring in these like, oh my God, like itty bitty masks, oxygen masks for the baby. They're switching out the diaper packages. They're switching everything out because now they're preparing for this premature baby. And looking at the size of her belly, they knew it was going to be very small. They prepped us for a stillborn. They said he would probably not cry. They prepped us for the worst. They prepped us that she wouldn't experience the normal baby being born, put on mommy's tummy. They said that wasn't going to be the case. They needed to whisk him and make sure he was okay. Um, around nine, ten, between nine and 11, he was born in about maybe no more than 10 pushes. She had a very easy delivery. He almost died. He, his heartbeat went down to 37. I remember hearing the machine go, you know, from fast to slow to like beep, beep beep, but very slow. They told your baby was falling asleep. We needed to get him out now. And that was it. She pushed and he was born and he took about 30 seconds, but he started crying. And I was in tears. I was like, oh my God, he's alive. Because I knew what the struggle was for a good two weeks. And he was born. They took him into the, you know, they took him away like they said they would. They did eventually bring him back because I guess he was stronger than they thought. And so they did eventually put him on her for a couple of minutes only. And then they said, okay, we have to take him away. And that was it. As unprepared and surprised as they were about the birth of the baby, Melissa, V, and the baby's dad had used the few hours they had before his arrival to come up with a name for the little guy. Before the end of the day, V's baby was born weighing in at a tiny 3 pounds and 4 ounces 
and barely the length of your forearm from head to toe. He was the tiniest little person Melissa had laid eyes on and was immediately overcome with love for her new grandchild, Kay. With tears of joy and relief, Melissa watched little baby Kay stretch and cry and reach out for affection. Little did she know that this was the moment that her life would change forever. All the trials and turbulence of the past faded in comparison to what lay ahead. Right from his birth, little baby Kay needed the support and protection of more than just his mother for his basic survival. Being born at 33 weeks, premature and so very small, Kay was kept in the NICU for over a month. Unable to breastfeed and bond with her baby, V had to face all the emotional challenges every mother goes through after giving birth. There were limitations to how much she could hold him and cuddle him. But Melissa was there with her every step of the way. V and Melissa went to see baby Kay as much as they could during those four weeks in the NICU. They supplemented his feeding with donated breast milk at the hospital in the initial few weeks and eventually moving him onto formula when his little tummy was strong enough. Finally, the happy day arrived on 4th March 2017, when the doctors gave them the green light to take baby Kay home. And so he came home on March 4th. She called me that day and she said, Mom, he's gained his five pounds and they're going to let him out now. He's good. He's, he's going to come home. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. We got all excited. So we said, OK, you know, we'll see you guys later. We'll come over and visit. And so she took him home and it was just them. And that was on March 4th, 2017. So we go, we visit. I'm going there every day. I go in the morning before I go to work and I shower him. For the first few days, he was so tiny. Even I, who has, I have showered all my nieces and nephews. I've probably bathed like 12 to 14 children, newborns I'm talking about, right? Because their mothers were afraid. My sisters, you know, they're like, no, no, you're brave. You do it. So I'm used to that, but I'm used to six pound babies, not a little three pound potato. And so it was a struggle to bathe him. So for the first week, I just did like a sponge wiping because he was so small and his skin, he was just so delicate. And so I would sponge him off. And then the one day we finally showered him was when he turned seven days old. Um, in our culture, that's the day we give them the bath. So we use this mesh thing you buy in the baby store to hold him up. You know, this thing has like, what? it's like, it's like a mesh <laughs> protective net. So we managed. So I would go every day and I would bathe him. I would teach her to be a mother. So she was also afraid. So she said, no, no, no. I'll let you know when I can. But she's there watching with me. She's there watching and I'm showing her and she's playing with him and I'm bathing him. And then I would give him the coconut oil baby massage. But again, because he was just three pounds, you couldn't do the typical rubs. He was so small and his skin was so soft. Still, he was still developing. Many times when I go, he would be crying. The father would be at work. She would be at home. He would be crying. I would hear him from like downstairs because she'd leave the door unlocked for me knowing I'm coming. And if I go, like she'd be in the bathroom or she's in the kitchen and he's on the bed and he'd be crying, wailing and crying. And I'm like, why is he crying that much? Because he could tell he's been crying for a while. And she just was blocked to the fact that this child was screaming and crying. And 
I'd go and I'd pick him up and be like, grandma's here. Grandma's here. Why are you crying? And I'd start talking to him. I'd say to her, give him a bottle. He's hungry. And she's like, but I just did. I'm like, I know, but you know, so I try guiding her, right? Give him a bottle, feed him, whatever the case may be. And I would leave. I would spend at most maybe an hour there because he was at the stage where he'd sleep, right? eat sleep eat sleep eat sleep cry because he wanted milk the moment she fed him he'd fall asleep so I was not there very long but I was there almost every day and then as the weeks went on I think I started going once every three days or so because I also wanted to give them a chance this was their baby right I was just there to guide her and as he started to get more comfortable then she says to me that they shower with him by holding him in the shower. And I'm like, are you nuts? This baby is so small that I'm so afraid to hold him. Don't do that. And you'll know why I told you that in a, in a second. So, you know, there was a day she called me and she was crying in the evening and she was audibly upset. And she says, mom, can you get Kay and I, please, please come pick us up. I was like, what happened? Are you okay? Yes, yes, come pick us up. So I'd drop everything. I'd go get them, bring them here, pack the baby stuff up. I'd get there and her and the, the boyfriend are having this loud argument. The door slams, one walks out and I'd be like, where is the child? Give me the child. The first thing would be, give me this child and put him in the car so I know he's safe. During this time, there's a series of fights, physical fights where he pushes her down the stairs many, many circumstances that was happening. And I would say, you need to call the police. And of course, she was so blinded in love. Now, this is a very short span of time. I'm talking about two months, right? March 4th. And remember this day, May 4th, March 4th to May 4th. She's going to the supper club, taking the baby. So she used to attend this supper club, which is a, run by the city, and it's for mothers-to-be. They teach you nutrition. She made friends. So she was attending this while she was pregnant. She continues to attend with the baby. There she said to them, when the baby cries, I don't hear him. He can be crying through the night. I do not hear him crying. I sleep soundly. She said to them that the father is the one that gets up and feeds him. The father is the one that does everything. He showers him because by now I'm going maybe once a week on the weekends only. And she says to them in the supper club, the baby's dad is the one that's basically doing everything. I, I just want to sleep. She was crying for help and no one listened. And they said, well, it sounds like you might be going through what's called postpartum. They did a, a checklist and they said she scored quite high on the list of questions. You need to go see your doctor. Are you feeling like killing yourself? Those are the questions she was asked. She went to her family doctor who said, if you feel like killing yourself, come back. But I think you'll be okay. Yes. The doctor dismissed, they gave her the form to give to the doctor that scored 96% on a postpartum test, and they were very concerned. So the supper club had initiated a call with Children's Aid, and the call that they initiated with Children's Aid is what sparked Children's Aid to be involved in their life. Postpartum depression. If you Google the term, you will get an endless list of search results ranging from what is postpartum depression to the symptoms to how you can get help. Yet, a survey done by Statistics Canada between 2018 and 2019 states that in Canada alone, almost one quarter or 23% of mothers who recently gave birth reported feelings consistent with either postpartum depression or an associated anxiety disorder. For many new and inexperienced mothers, Postpartum depression can easily be mistaken for the commonly known 
baby blues in the initial stages, where the mother may have unintentional feelings of sadness, worry, and fatigue. But unlike baby blues, these feelings are more intense and longer-lasting, and may not resolve on their own. If left ignored and untreated, it can eventually interfere with a mother's ability to care for her baby and handle other daily tasks. The journey of pregnancy and delivery are a roller coaster of emotions and hormonal changes on every expectant mother. Giving birth to a child puts all of that into overdrive, and every new mother copes differently. Symptoms of postpartum depression are said to usually develop within the first few weeks after giving birth, but they may also begin either earlier, later, or even during pregnancy. In some cases, Symptoms have been observed as late as a year after birth. This depression or anxiety can last anywhere from a few weeks, months, or even years. Statistics also show that 30% of mothers under the age of 25 report feelings consistent with postpartum. By comparison, 23% of mothers aged 25 and older report these feelings after delivery. One in three mothers who are diagnosed with postpartum depression or an anxiety disorder have had pre-existing depression or other mood disorders. The symptoms of postpartum range from mood swings, excessive crying and hopelessness to thoughts of harming yourself and your baby and suicide. They also include symptoms such as sleeping too little or too much, overwhelming fatigue, restlessness, and difficulty bonding with your baby. As a new teen mom living in an abusive relationship, V was clearly going through the worst of postpartum and was reaching out for help and guidance wherever she could. Unfortunately for her, it was not fully acknowledged or dealt with in a timely manner, the consequences of which brought forth the worst year of Melissa's life and the life of her family. Once children's aid was brought into the picture, things went downhill fast. The most heartbreaking of all was that the one who suffered the consequences the most was innocent and helpless little baby Kay. I don't know if they had gone or they may have had one, maybe two visits and that was it with her. And she's saying, I don't hear him crying. And I could attest to that because there was many times I went and this child is crying where you would grab a child and be like, shh, don't cry. It didn't phase her. He was crying. She wasn't upset by it. It just, she wasn't, it was like if she had headphones on, she didn't hear this. She was in a different zone. So May 2nd, she sends me a photo on my phone and she sent a photo of his arm and it had some marks on his arm, on his lower arm, just under his elbow and a mark on his cheek. And she said, mom, this is so strange. Look at this, it looks like bite marks. He's got these marks on his skin. And uh, she says, mommy has a bruise. So by now it's warm, May 4th. So it's a little relatively warm. And she goes to the supper club with him on May 2nd. And when she goes to the supper club, she's openly, openly telling them, um, yeah, look, isn't this so weird? Look at his arm, look at his cheek. It looks like a bite mark, don't you think? She's consciously saying to them, here's what happened. I don't understand. I'm baffled. 
She's going there and crying out for help silently, but no one's really giving her the help she needs. They're just giving you advice, but that's it. And on May 4th, she calls me about 10 o'clock at night, hysterically crying. And she couldn't breathe and I couldn't understand what she's saying to me on the phone. And I got off my bed. I was already in bed asleep and I got up to not wake up my husband. I was like, what? And she's like, they took him. They took him. Um, something's wrong with him. And I was like, what do you mean something's wrong with him? Wait, are you okay? Is Kale, is the father, like her, you know, her boyfriend okay? So I was like, where's the baby? Where's Kay? freaking out she was crying hysterically that I couldn't understand what she was saying and all I could gather was her saying something happened to him something's wrong with him and I says what do you mean something's wrong with him where is Kay is Kay okay what happened to him and she said something happened to him and I, then I asked where's Kay's father and she said he's here I said calm down breathe so I got her to calm down and stop being very hysterical she was having a panic attack and I calmed her down and I said, what's happening? I don't understand what you're telling me. And I calmed her down enough to understand that she said they were at Sick Kids, Kay had injuries, and they were keeping him. And then she said, they might ask you to take him. Can you please take him? And I said, of course. So I wake my husband up. I'm at this point, I'm panicked. And I said, apparently they're at Sick Kids, something happened to the baby. And at this point, she's telling me they're saying that both of them did it, like, which is V or K's father did something to the baby. And I said, what happened? What did you do? So now I'm, I'm asking all these questions. And she's like, nothing, nothing. We did nothing. They just showed up at my door and they were knocking on the door and I wouldn't answer. And then the police came and then they took him and she had to go in the police car and the police took him to sick kids. And I said, I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this. They were in the hospital and uh, we might have to take him. So then I start freaking out. Okay, we don't have anything. <laughs> I start saying to my husband, okay, well, if he comes home tonight, we can put him on the bed and we're trying to figure out how we're going to get a crib. We have nothing for him, right? So we started figuring out what we would put into action and, and how we would manage, but we're ready on a whim for a phone call to get him. They never called. The next day she calls me and said that she was home and that they kept him and they were running some routine tests on him something called a scan. He was in a scan unit and they were running routine tests on him and they were going to let us know. At this point, we're discovering and it's unfolding that he had a broken seventh rib. His eighth rib was bruised and bulging. So the eighth was almost broken. He had blood in the fluid around his brain and bite marks on his cheeks and his arm. And both mother and father are saying they did not do this and they don't know how it happened. So sick kids, the police is now there. Police are talking to them, questioning them. They're now considered criminal suspects. And in those conversation was who else had access to him? If you didn't do it and dad didn't do it, well, who else had access to him? Grandma did. I did. I had access to him. I used to go every morning and shower him. At this point, I wasn't going every day to shower him anymore, but I would still see him often. But I was the only other one other than them that was holding, playing, lifting. And she had left him at my store. And she said to them, well, I left him with my mom for 20 minutes one day. And I came back, but he never woke up. He was asleep. And that's the only reason they never gave him to us. When it started unfolding that he had all these injuries, this tiny little baby that you were attached to because you were taking care of him, how did you feel at that point? I remember crying that night. I felt like he was my child. I, 
you know, I was so attached to my daughter and, uh, and because I was there every day, I was there for the pregnancy. I was there when he was born. I was going every day. I felt like this was another one of my children. I felt more than just a grandmother's love for him. So it hurt at the beginning. I'll be honest. I thought it was my daughter who did it because she had violent tendencies. I thought my daughter hurt her baby. I didn't want to admit that, but that's what I thought. I thought it could have been any one of them, but I thought it was probably her because I, could, I couldn't understand how she could hear him cry and not be flinched or moved or bothered by your baby crying and screaming for that long. So I thought she did it. So there was this long drawn investigation. So we had to wait an entire week before they or anyone got to see him. So they took him, they kept him there for a week. They ran a multiple of tests. CT scans, MRI, you name it, they ran it on him because they now they're doing a full check to see what else could be wrong that we don't know about. By the end of that week, Children's Aid was heavily involved in their life, phone calls. I got involved. I started calling. Can we have him? They said, no, you, ha you also had access. There's a criminal investigation. I said, let me talk to the police officers. At this point, I'm throwing myself in front of the police. I'm throwing myself in front of CS because I know I've not done anything to this child. And I'm saying, give him to me. How can you have him in a stranger's house? How, how can you take this child? So he was already in foster care. They already put him in foster well, care. Not him. yet, but we knew that's probably what was going to happen. And then they said, there's a court happening at the end of that week, downtown Toronto. You need to go there. And uh, there was this friend that I know that comes to my networking group. And I tell you, everything in life happens for a reason and it aligns. And this person out of the blue messaged me that day and said, hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking about you. Everything's good. Haven't seen you in a while. And I said, I just vented. I just was like a, you know, steaming kettle just overflowing. And I was like, no, it's not going good. This just happened. The baby had just gotten taken away. And I was like pouring my heart out to her. And she said, stop typing. I'm going to call you. So she called me and we chat. And she was a, she's a mental health worker. And she works for WSIB on their cases. And she offered to come to court for us to help make sense of what was going on. And she said, well, your daughter must be so traumatized by this. And I'm like, well, I guess, because I wasn't thinking of my daughter. I was thinking of this baby, right? And I said, well, I guess. So she came home to our house. She asked if it was okay. She asked my permission if she could come talk to my daughter. And I said, okay. And when she came to my house, she was talking to my daughter. The baby's father was still at work. And he called while she was in the middle of that conversation. And she you could tell she was getting upset and whatever it was, he was upset that the fact that she was at my place at our house, at her mother's house. He didn't like that. Cause I remember her crying and saying, don't you understand? I can't just sit there and stare at four walls. Cause remember this is an 18 year old girl who has postpartum who has underlying mental health issues that we know nothing of at this point. Her baby was taken away from her, not to mention the fact that she just left the hospital with no baby, and then he comes home, I'm bonding, and then he gets ripped away from me. Three days before her birthday, and six days before our Mother's Day, her first Mother's Day, her first birthday as a mother, emotionally, she was a mess. I wasn't thinking of any of that. And this person, this mental health worker, her name is C, kind of senses where she's at, by now, baby's father comes to our place to pick her up and he comes inside and he starts talking to her and the counselor starts asking specific targeted questions because she knew what she was seeing. This is her expertise. Kay's father, the baby's father, said to us that day or said to my daughter V in front of me and her stepdad and this counselor, a woman he's never met, 
he blurts out and says, you know, because now they're like having this counseling session and they're both at each other, right? It was your fault, your fault, da da da. You did this and you didn't do that. And he turns around and she's like, Yes, why don't you tell them when you push me down the stairs? Why don't you tell them when you hit me with the piece of wood? And we're like jaw dropping at this point because this is the first time I'm hearing, this was the first time I was hearing about all these things and how abusive their relationship was. And he says, with a straight face, okay, yes, so I hit you, I cuffed you, I punched you, I kicked you in your stomach when you were pregnant, but I love you. This is what we just sat and heard that day. And I, I did not know what to say, how to stomach it. I wanted to say, get out of my house. I cannot begin to tell you. And she digressed it as what she does as an expert in mental health and counseling and all that. We dropped her home that day. And on the way home, she was saying her prayers out loud, the counselor. And I thought, like, I thought something was a little bit weird, but I didn't, I didn't ask anything. I was like, okay, she's just different personality, right? Because she was praying out loud. We dropped her off home. And then we was going back home. And I got a text from her. And she said, you need to call me when you can privately, please. Not when your daughter's around. Not when anyone's around. Call me ASAP. It's about your daughter. And I need to talk to you right away. And so I called her back and I said, what's going on? And she says, look, you need to get your daughter out of that. And before she said that, she said to me, she's like, your daughter didn't do it. She says, I know you think it's your daughter. She said, your daughter didn't do it. It's the father. And I says, how did you know that? How do you know that? And she says, I'm telling you. And so there were things he said and how he reacted to certain trigger questions she asked him that day is what made her expert knowledge assess that he's the one. She was looking, observing his hands. She was observing certain things. She was looking at the fact that my daughter was this tiny stature and she says, there is no way. She said the fact that she took the picture of the, the marks and the, the evidence on the phone, subconsciously, she knew it was evidence. Subconsciously, she was telling the, the class, the club, he has bite marks. She said, if you did something, you would cover it up. You would never take evidence in photos. You would never go and tell about it. But to the world, she was this nutcase who was an emotional basket case. So it made it look like she was capable. But she said to me, it was not your daughter. And that day I cried because I felt pretty guilty that I thought it could have been my daughter that would have hurt her child. And so she said to me, you need to get her out of that relationship or you're going to be IDing your daughter in a body bag. And I says, don't tell me that. She says, I'm telling you that's what's going to happen. The baby's father is nothing short of a psychopath, and he's a sociopath with psychological issues. He's a time bomb waiting to go off, and your daughter will be dead. You need to go now and get your daughter out of that apartment. And I said to this woman, see, she will not leave. She will not leave him. I, cannot, I can only say so much. She's so in love and attached, and she's not going to leave him. And I tried to tell my daughter this, and she didn't hear any of it. What are you talking about? They don't know. I didn't tell her that it was the father that did it, but, you know, I started to talk to her differently at this point. And C would call me every day. She would message me. She would guide me how to work at things. And that was when she put things into perspective for me by telling me that every other mother gives birth and walks out with a baby in 24 to 48 hours. Here's this young mother, not to mention, so not even ready to have a child. Here's a child having a child, and she doesn't get to walk out with that baby. She doesn't get to do the initial bonding that we do. Now, you've got this trauma situation of going to visit a NICU every day that's got its own emotional things to it. Then on top of that, your baby's not taking your milk and there's so many other things. 
then you get to bring him home and in one month he's gone in two months he he gets taken away with injuries so she put it in perspective for me and i started to view things differently in this time we had the court date in the first week and um and that was when the judge said that baby is not coming home with grandma Grandma had access to the baby. Children's Aid is now saying they don't want me to get custody of the baby because it could have been me. And so Children's Aid was preventing him from coming home to my family. And they said, nope, he's been awarded to a foster home and, uh, and you know, we have to go back to court. At two months old, baby Kay had already survived a premature birth, a month in the NICU, and, devastatingly, an abusive household environment that ended up with him injured, bruised, and put up in foster care. For Melissa, this was by far the darkest and most difficult time in life that she's ever had to pull herself through. She had to learn and push and fight and pray for the strength she needed to get her family back together, to get her new grandson back home to his family where he belonged, to keep her daughter V stable through her own mental health issues that she was only just realizing existed with the help of a friend who knew the system well. Beyond that, Melissa still needed to be a mother to her own young son, a wife, and had a full business to run. With court dates, legal aids, lawyers, visiting times, and foster care situations that seemed so far out of her control, Melissa admits that there were times when she felt utterly and completely helpless against the colossal weight of what they were up against to get baby Kay back home. How, one might ask, did she make it through? How do you win when the whole world seems to be against you? And so we spent almost a year in court um, from, from May 4th to December 20th. We got to see him for the first time a week later. We were given the two hours visitation the first Sunday. So we all went there. Everybody went. We all went to see him because it's the first time we're seeing him in about 10 days. So they were granted two days visitation all together, two days a week, two hours each time. And it would be behind a glass door where they're being observed with the children's aid workers. It's under supervision. When the first foster mother brought him, his head was, his head was deformed. It was flat. It was flat on the side. He smelt sour because we, when we picked him up to kiss him, you could smell his neck was sour. He was fat. He was very fat. He was still a tiny little bugger, but in between the creases of his elbows and his neck and his rolls had black dirt, black muck. So then we start asking questions. Why does he smell sour? Why is his head flat? And so when he would come, we would take like the wipes and we would wipe his, you know, because we're now discovering this, right? So we start asking questions. Why is his head flat? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why is his clothes dirty? Why did he come with a poop diaper? Things like that. We looked at this foster mother who was much older and didn't look like she can run after a child. So we were asking, how is she able to take care of him? When she would show up with him, she would ask for help to take him out of her car. How was she managing without us? So, you know, we're now concerned. So we voice her questions. And so during these visits, there are days where my daughter doesn't show up, the baby's father doesn't show up, 
or they show up late, or they don't show up, or they have arguments during the visits. So it's very inconsistent for my grandson. However, my husband and I was there every visit. If the visit was starting at 9 to 11, we were there at 8.30. She, the foster mother happened to be there at 9.30, 9.40, so we got an extra 20 minutes with him. In the waiting room, of course, but we would sit there and publicly were like, hi, Papa. Hi, how are you? And this is when he was developing how to smile. So he'd give us these smiles and we would feel so overjoyed. Oh my God, he recognizes us, you know? And so he'd be sitting there lost, looking at the ceiling. And the moment he heard the voices, you'd see that smile come on and you're like, oh my God, he knows, he knows the voices. And so the days that, the days that my daughter did not show up, because again, now she's dealing with her mental issues. Now, a month into this twice a week visitation, she's having moments where she's melting. She's melting down. I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. Let them keep him. Take him. I can't. I can't do this. You know, so much emotions. And children's aid is focused on the fact that these are two young parents, 18 and 21 years old. And instead of teaching them how to do parents, all they did was investigate how they are and i'm not saying they can't do that but take this as an opportunity to teach them how to parent and have the goal to reunite this child with his family that's never what they wanted to do i stepped in as almost like an advocate for this child and for my daughter and i stepped in i insisted on speaking to the workers i started asking we started photographing evidence of the things with the baby when I asked, why is his head flat? Then the worker said, we're going to do a home visit. Then they came back and they said, okay, this first foster mother had him always laying down in the crib. And that's why he was getting the flat head. And they've asked her to turn him. So a couple of times, there were a couple of incidents where she would show up and she would have no diapers, no formulas. And I'm like, look, if they're getting money for this child and my daughter has no child at home, why would she be buying diapers and formula? The foster mother should be providing. So eventually they changed that foster mother by month one. He goes into a second foster home. He goes into a foster home that's not matching our religion or our beliefs. We have a blue, navy blue dot on the baby's forehead and it's considered against evil eye for the children as a protection. They would never put it on for him because it was against their religion. So we would ask that he needed to wear this gold bracelet with the black beads, which is for the protection they wouldn't wear it for him. It would come in a bag in a sack. They said they didn't have a pencil. We said, here, I'm buying a pencil. Put the pencil always 24 seven. Can you please make sure he has this pencil and he has this little pouch that we've sewn with some seeds inside of it. Can you please make sure this baby is wearing this at all times unless when he's showering. He would always show up without the sack. He would come and because um, this culture believes in circumcision, Kay was not circumcised. So the second month of visits now, and he's with a new family, and he comes for a visit, and we're changing him. And here now we're noticing when we pull his penis skin to clean him, it's got this thick white film on his penis. He's got dirty black muck in his neck, in his armpits. He's smelling. So my daughter took her finger and wiped it off and she's, she's like, oh, this is gross. And I said, what? So at this point, we're taking uh, baby wipes and we're wiping him and the penis, when you wipe it, would get clean. So we call the children's aid worker and we said, come, you need to see this. Look. So we start showing them, look at this. And they're like, oh, well, maybe. And I said, no, it can wipe off. Look, you want to see? And we showed her before and we showed her when we wiped it and how it got clean. We asked, 
All they do is please wipe, please pull it back and wipe it. That's all we ask. When he showers, pull it back and wash it. That Sunday, there was a baby Uber. I called it the baby Uber. It was CAS has cars, specific cars that are hired to drop the babies to and from their foster parents' homes if the foster parent can't bring them. So the baby would get sent in a car seat with a diaper bag. This was a small little gold car. And when we went to put the baby in to the car to go back to the foster mother at the end of the visit, my daughter put Kay in the car. And as she bent into the back seat of the car, she saw about six cigarette butts on the floor of the car and she smelled the cigarette smoke. Now she was a smoker. I was not. She smelled the smoke and she started to ask the CAS worker and she says, I'm not putting my baby in this car. This guy smokes. He smokes in here and I could smell the smoke. My baby is a premature baby. His lungs is not developed and I am not sending him in a car that's filled with smoke. The children's aid worker was standing there and say, this is the baby approved car and he's going in this car to Oakville. My daughter starts crying and she says, mom, he's going to be driving from here to Oakville. He can't help himself. How is he going to breathe in this car? I just stuck my head in there for two seconds and I can't breathe. I thought she was overreacting. I put my head in the front seat and I, I smelt it. I felt heavy. It was not just one. It was a car that was constantly secondhand smoke because it's stinked of the smoke. And we said to the CAS worker, please smell. Please put your head in here. Please. We're just asking you. Confirm. We're not making this up. Please get another car. Please get another Uber car. And the children's aid worker said, no, this is the car he's going home with. My mother, we all smelt it. It was filled with smoke. We saw the cigarette butts. We took pictures of the cigarette butts. And on Monday, my daughter was told that the Sunday visits are now canceled because she complains too much. She complains too much. So she's now only allowed to see her son once a week. Why they couldn't do Sunday visits? Because on a weekend has limited resources at children's aid and they're not able to help supervise when my daughter makes trouble. So every time we complain about his penis being dirty, him coming dirty, you know, being put in a secondhand smoke car, that was considered causing trouble. And they punished her by cutting the visit. So this infant who is now, you know, five months is only allowed to see his parents and his family once a week for two hours. So we, that day we cried. She cried. She broke down. She had a panic attack. I mean, you're helpless. You're helpless. And Children's Aid, who is supposed to protect children, that's not protecting a child who is helpless. He can't say anything. Could he tell you my lungs are hurting? Could he say, well, I can't breathe? No one cares. No one cares. After that, and he continued to have the penis issues, the worker calls and said something about that family, and they're moving him to a third family. So he gets moved again. So by month four, he's in a third foster home. The third foster home had him. It was the odd. He would come with dirty clothes. That foster home would not send the milk for him. It was just, again, more issues, right? But we were now so afraid to complain that they would cut the visit. So now we're not saying anything. So we started taking a bowl from home, a washcloth, a baby soap. We started taking toiletries in our own bag. So when he would show up for the two-hour visits, the first thing we did was bathe him. We would have to bathe this little child in a cold, air-conditioned room. Yeah, the water comes from the, the bathroom hot, warm, you know, warm. 
but he's in a freezing cold room and he's like crying and he's like trembling because he's so cold but what can we do because this is the only decent bath this child looks like he's having his hair was smelling it was horrible horrible he had rashes in his bum now he was a very sensitive child so he couldn't use pampers they're sending him in pampers and we put all this in the notes this child couldn't have this 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 no one cared Children's Aid did not care. And we said, look, the two months he lived at home, we've tried it. The Pampers makes his butt bleed. Please put him only in Huggies. They said, he's in the foster mother's care. They get to buy what they want for him. They're getting money to raise this child. And we, as the parents and the family, cannot have a say in how this child is being raised. Can you imagine that? It's unimaginable, unspeakable how we felt for those months. The last foster family we met, when we met them at Children's Aid to discuss the things they weren't doing with him and that they weren't putting the blue dot and they weren't, you know, different things. The, the foster mother and foster father came and they didn't have Kay with them. And I remember asking, where's Kay? And they said to me, oh, he's at home with her brother. And I said, your brother, does your brother know how to change a diaper? And in their culture, the men don't look after the babies. So we were even more concerned. And we brought up those concerns to the children's aid in that meeting. And we said, no, like, you know, has he been checked out? Has he been run through a testing? Like, what if they're molesting the child? We don't know, right? We don't know what's happening out there. And that particular family was the third family he was with we had to bring it up to her that he had a fever and you sent him with Tylenol that's not suitable for a child under two. And you're writing in the book that you're giving him the dosage that a two-year-old should be happening. This is not baby Tylenol. This is illegal. Like you guys can't even take care of this child. You're giving him medicine that's not even geared for a, a six-month-old. And again, Children's Aid is saying, we're making trouble. We're making trouble by telling you that you're giving this child medicine that says two to 11 years old, and this child is six months old. You're giving him the thing for the teeth, mm -hmm. Oragel. You're giving him adult Oragel, not baby Oragel that's baby flavored and safe for a child. You're giving him Oragel that's only suitable for adults. So we started documenting our own notes and we would bring it up. So by now we're getting more attached. My daughter doesn't show up for visits, the father doesn't show up, but my husband and I go every time to visit. At this time, it's about June, and we're continuing to take a consistent front. Children's Aid is observing what's going on, and they said, Melissa, we're gonna give you visits. Mom and dad are not gonna get visits, but we're gonna give you and your husband visits. The baby is gonna get sent home. By the way, by now we got a new worker, and he is the worker that changed everyone's life forever. This one worker is the worker that cared. Before that, the worker that they had, it was a young woman who had no children. And when I would bring things up in the meetings we would have with her, all she would do is point fingers. There are criminals. There's a criminal investigation. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I'm like, but they're the parents. And I would ask her, teach them how to be parents then. She looked at them and dismissed them like 17 and 21-year-old punks who were unstable, so she couldn't care less. The new worker, we finally got a worker flipped that came on the case was a godsend for us. And when we spoke to him, and he has children, so he gets it. The second month, the visit's on the Sunday, and during this time, we're all going to court, we're fighting. We got a lawyer for ourselves as well. 
every time we go to court, the, the children's aid and, and her lawyer, they're not letting us go in front of a judge. And we're just kind of following whatever they say. They're the experts. And so I, I would be the one to speak and talk. And I got letters from our priests, from the community, from the group that I run. I got letters from my ex-bosses. I got letters from you name it. I got letters from the nurse. I got letters from everyone to say, look, Melissa is a woman that's involved in the community. She's a religious person. I know her. I've known her for years. I got a letter from my doctor. They're all attesting, look, give them this child because he needs to be with family. And there's no way she could have done this, please. So we got that done. And by the fourth or fifth, maybe the fifth month, we got to prove my husband and I to get him to come home to our house for home visits. So Kay started coming home in and about July, he starts coming home and he's allowed four hours twice a week. So eight hours in total for me and his grandpa, not his mother and father, mother and father only gets the one visit in the CAS. Watching her grandchild suffer through living with one uncaring foster home after another was almost too much to bear but ultimately being approved for longer home visits of eight hours a week with baby Kay was a big win so far and served as just the emotional boost Melissa needed to stick this fight out to the end for her grandchild. Melissa and her husband cherished every single second they had with their grandson during those visits, giving him as much love and affection as they could and hoping it would last until their next visit. And it was working. In a way, Baby Kay was clearly beginning to realize who his real family was, recognizing faces, voices, and situations around him. This was both a blessing and a painful curse, because for every time he smiled when he saw his grandparents and heard their voices, he cried for when it was time to leave. So Melissa's heart broke every week when she had to send her grandson away over and over again. So we still consistently go to CAS, we keep him home, you know, but when we go to CAS, again, all I'm doing there is teaching them how to be parents to this child. So while we're there, I'll tell her, you know, do this, hold his neck, do this, make sure you burp him. So Kay gets to consistently see me and his grandpa. So now when he would come home, we're in the comfort of her home, we would bathe him. We would put him on the floor to play. At nap time, I'd rock him on my shoulders and sing for him religious songs, and he'd fall asleep in my arms. We'd put him down in the playpen once he fell asleep. The first few times, we would hold him, of course. <laughs> Eventually, we said, okay, we shouldn't give him this bad habit. Let's put him in the playpen. The first time we put him in the bathtub, this child, I have the video that I, he loves to look at that video, let me tell you. He was like a fish, splashing, giggling, laughing. This child loves to bathe, loves, loves, loves. It was unbelievable how much he was kicking and, and laughing and giggling and, and babbling his baby words. And we're like, wow, how can they have this child dirty when he loves to bathe? And so nap time, we'd put him down. And the first time he woke up in the playpen, he woke up screaming. Like he was so scared and we didn't realize he was afraid of the playpen. He was afraid of enclosures. He was so scared of enclosures that he's not slept in the crib. He would not have it. He hated it. This child would wake up like he saw a ghost. Like he couldn't breathe crying. He was crying so badly. He was traumatized. And what we realized after 
is that he was traumatized because in his foster home, he was left in a crib or a playpen. So he didn't like being in cribs or playpens. We figured it out after and we would never put him in there or we'd make sure like he fell asleep in the open ground. So there was never a cage and he would wake up fine. If we put him in the crib to sleep, every hour he'd wake up. He couldn't sleep in a crib. And so we continued to bond with him. He started to grow. We would take videos. Mom wasn't allowed to come home and neither was dad. So we would take videos and video calls so she could be part of it through video. The children's aid worker would unannounced show up. They had to, because I'm still at this time a suspect, right? And during this time, we're begging, please give him to us. Please, please let him come home to family. He loves, he's giggling, he's loving it. At this point, when we put him in the car to drive away, he started having senses, right? When we, he would start getting sad when it was time. When we started putting him, because we would know he'd have to go at two o'clock. So we would, at like quarter to two, we'd start putting him in the seat, getting him ready. He would get so sad to go into the seat. And so it was obvious that he was understanding. He was coming to this home with so much nurturing and love and genuine affection. And now he's going to a place where he's probably left in a playpen, where he's probably left in a crib. And there was days where we'd put him in that car and he would turn the other way to not look at us. And the faces he would give you was as if he was saying, mama, papa, why are you letting them take me away? So we would be crying. My husband would come inside and my husband would, he would just lean on the wall and he would be like a baby. And my husband is a very strong you know, solid man type, you know, he's a big guy and he has, my husband doesn't show emotion often. My husband would come in, there was many days and I, the first day he did it, I was in shock because remember, this is not his biological grandson either, but he loves him as it is. He's raised my children. He's been in my children's life since they were seven and nine or six and nine. And my husband, the one, the first day he came inside, I just heard him and I thought he was laughing. And when I looked, he was crying. He was, just, he was crying out loud and I saw him lean up on the wall and I hugged him and I said, because what can we, we were helpless. We were just so helpless. This baby's helpless. We're helpless. And it was, and he said to me, he said, he said, did you see the way he looked at us? Did you see the way he looked and he turned away? And I said, I know, you know, there's nothing we could do. And, um, and that just made me want to fight harder. And I started calling the police every God day, the investigator who's supposed to call me in six months later, and we haven't gotten a call yet. And I'm like, what are you waiting on? Let me do a lie detector test. Come to my house. Like I'm, I was throwing myself at the legal system. I'm throwing myself at children's aid. I'm throwing myself at the lawyer. I'm throwing myself. I'm like, please, please. And like, investigate get it over with we have nothing to hide this child needs to come home this child is growing you know we started to see his character build and grow and he could show you when he was happy and when he was sad he could show you um how upset he was when it was time for him to get picked up by this uber and, and the driver of this car ended up being one same older gentleman who was in his 60s and this gentleman would say to us I could see how happy this child is. And he would tell us when we would put Kay in the car that Kay would be silent all the way home. In the last two months, we earned eight-hour visits, twice a week, eight hours. So now we were getting him for a full day. The first day we had this child for eight hours, we took him to our temple. 
He was so distraught, this child, because the only life he knew from May to about October, the only life he knew was being put in a carrier in a car to a foster home, in a car to mama and papa. That's all he knew. The sadness and the joy, the sadness and the joy. So when we first took him for his first with us, like long drive, right? Where now we have him for eight hours. He was so scared. We had to continually, even though he's not at this age to talk, we're continually reassuring him, you okay, Papa? You okay, Baba? Everything okay? Because we could tell how, you know, you could, the facial expression in the eyes says a lot. And he's got these big, beautiful eyes. And it would say a lot. And we'd have to reassure him that, it's okay. It's okay. You're safe. You're with Mama and Papa. You're safe. Um, you know, and we would have to reassure him that no one was going to harm him and that you were with us. No one's going to take you away and you'll come home one day, you know, until he realized, okay, because he thought, you know, we're, he's getting dropped off again, right? I only saw you for 10 minutes and because we would, he would come home, we would shower, change him and we're on the way to the temple, right? So then we hired a lawyer and the lawyer started putting things into place saying, okay, my client, you have no criminal, you haven't investigated what's happening. Time was running out for baby K and they all knew it. Foster children are kept in the foster system for one year only. If the criminal investigation for the child abuse committed is not solved by then, the child will be put up for adoption and then it will be too late. Melissa was not about to let anything go without a fight. She began researching more, questioning more, reaching out to people, groups, and communities more to gain as much knowledge, information, and understanding as she could on how the CAS system works so she could arm herself for the custody battle ahead. Now, Children's Aid at this point is telling us it's almost coming up into a year and we're gonna have to put him up for adoption that they don't stay more than a year in the system. And here we are begging to have this child and they're saying, no, we're going to put him up for adoption. And I'm saying, give me a reason why you won't give him to us. Other than the fact that there's an ongoing criminal investigation that they're not invest, they're not calling. So like, what do you want to do? By now, Kay is coming home for how many months we're really bonding with this child and I'm seeing his emotions and I'm like, this is not happening, man. This is not happening. So during this time, I started talking to more and more people, not telling them what was going on. You know, we're embarrassed, right? It's a stigma. The child got taken away. So we're embarrassed to tell people what's going on. But in the meanwhile, I'm reading, I'm learning, I'm going online. I'm learning the CAS. I'm learning the police system. And at this point, through the little bit with the lawyer, I learned. I joined a couple of Facebook groups with parents whose children got taken away and they were against the CAS. I didn't comment on there because a lot of them would tell you that CAS has their workers in the group undercover and they're paying, like they're watching you. But I started to learn a lot. So I decided to advocate for this child who can't speak, can't talk for himself, can't fight because his mother and father are own emotionally distraught. They can't even fight for their own selves. They can't think like I need to be strong for my child. So I said, you know what, I'm going to advocate for him. So with that, I started to learn. I started to study. I started to read up as much as I could. And I would tell my husband of examples I'm seeing online of situations. And it was a common thing in the foster homes. They don't take care of them. They're doing it for the money. 
So with that, I started to learn what was really going on, which made me even more concerned that our flesh and butter was out there in a home that he wasn't really loving. So at this point, we went to court. Our lawyer fought and her lawyer, who was hired through legal aid, we noticed this particular day, and this was December 20th, 2017. Her lawyer that was paid for by legal aid, we noticed that he would continue to talk to the children's aid lawyer in the corner. And this particular day, I started pushing her that day, tell your lawyer this, tell him that. Or I was talking to the lawyer at first, and I said, we want to ask the judge to bring him home. He said to us, no, no, we're going we're gonna to ask for overnight visits. That's all you should ask for. And we said, no, no. And the lawyer was blocking us and giving us all the reasons why we should not go in front of the judge. And I couldn't understand why wouldn't he take that risk? What's the worst can happen? They'll tell you no, and we'll still get weekends anyways, right? So we couldn't understand why the lawyer didn't want us to go in front of the judge. And that particular day in the court, we noticed that these lawyer, when we ask him to ask children's aid, we want you know, these provisions, he snuck off into a corner with the children's aid lawyer. And when we, I said to V, go and listen to what he's asking her because something in my gut wasn't feeling right. And I said, go see what he's saying. And when he saw V come, he stopped talking and he asked her to step aside. And I, she came and said, well, he asked her not to be part of the conversation. And I said, if this is about your child, why are you not part of the conversation? But what we learned and what we discovered going there in the court system and what we learned is that the CAS lawyer and the family lawyers are usually friends. And what they do is every time V's lawyer gets extended, he gets more money paid for by legal aid. I learned the system and I used the system against them, which was facts. I did not cheat the system. I was stating facts. Show me how I'm an unfit grandmother. Show me why and put me in front of the judge. These lawyer was paid for by legal aid, and so are 90% of the lawyers on that floor. So if a lawyer goes to court twice and the child gets awarded back, guess what? That lawyer is no longer going to court, right? But if he stretches out that child for one year, he gets a year's pay. Why would he want this case to get solved? No. So for him, this child is a number. For them, they're emotionless. They're not attached. For us, it's our blood. It's our emotions. And that's why. And so that day when I started fighting, arguing, and I said to V, and she argued with me, and she says, Mom, leave it alone. Don't do this. Stop. This is, this is you know, don't do this. And I broke down and I said, look, this is a helpless child who can't speak. If you don't fight for him and I don't fight for him, who's going to fight for him? Can't you see this lawyer is looking to delay it again? And if they don't put us in front of the judge, you come back again. You want this child to spend his first Christmas with a strange family? Is this what you're okay with? I'm like, can't you see? This is, this is what's happening. And then she started to click. So we started to go where him and the CS lawyer couldn't have a conversation. Then he stopped talking to me that day in court. He says, you, I can't talk to your mother anymore. I can only talk to you. You're my client because I was putting, giving her that support. And I said to her, see what I told you? Now he won't let me speak. So you tell him that you want to go in front of the judge. And he tried to scare us and use scare tactics. And he said, if you go in front of the judge, you're not going to get it. And I said to her, that's fine. Put us in front of the judge. It had been eight months since baby K was bounced between three foster homes. Eight months of sporadic moments of joy and sadness experienced by everyone involved. Eight months of Melissa's relentless fight to get her grandson back home against all odds.
Finally, her efforts were beginning to pay off. The day we went in was December 20th, 2017, in front of the judge, and the judge opened up, looked at the facts, he stripped apart the entire case, and his first question was, why is this child not with his maternal grandparents? You're giving them visits. It's safe enough that you're leaving this child in their care alone, but you won't put him there full-time. Why? So then they start bringing up, well, he had injuries, grandma had access, and he said, he looked at the, he, the, the judge looked at the notes and he said, did grandma have motive? Did she have cause? And they said, well, no, but they, he said, no. Grandma had baby once by herself. He baby was sleeping and it was in her public business. What would she have done then? So he started dissecting. The CAS did not have the reports. It was a lot of maybes. And the judge said, what is going on here? And the judge looked at it and realized this is unfair. So at that point, the judge said, and I will never forget it. It was about 4.30. We were the last case in court that day by a miracle. And he said, Kay is going home to grandma and grandpa. We're awarding them temporary care and custody, effective immediately. He gets out of the system. By now, he was in a fourth foster care, by the way. But the fourth one was a good one. He was in a very good one. They were the same religion. They, were, they loved this child, and you, you could see it. And he stayed there for maybe three weeks. So the judge says, we're awarding them temporary care and custody. And we, we were like overjoyed that day. And that was it. And that was on December 20th, five days before Christmas. I called my family. All knew that that was the day. And every time we went to court, we would have this big hope and the bubble would be bust. And so this day they were waiting to find out, you know, is it, is it? And, uh, and I called and I'm like, he's coming home, he's coming home. So I called my sister and my mother and I'm like, okay, pull something together. So they quickly made like signs and balloons and they, they did, you know, we did what we could. The moment he was done, we said to the worker like, okay, we're not waiting for tomorrow. We want him now, like we're going now. And he's like, well, he was a godsend, this worker. And so he said, okay, fine. So he called, he made it happen. So now he had to go to the foster home, collect Kay, collect his belongings, because we're not supposed to know where the foster home is. Kay has to go to a clinic to get legally checked out by a doctor and a written note, what's, you know, if he has any injuries, because, you know, it, they're releasing him, right? And then he could get released. I said, I don't care. We went from five o'clock till 8.30 at night. The doctor, this doctor was closed. We drove to the other doctor. He got all the medical papers and, uh, and Kay was home at 8.30 at night on December 20th. And by then we had gotten, we had prepared. So we had like the crib waiting, we had everything waiting for him, clothes and everything. So my life changed on December 20th, 2017. It's been, you know, waking up at night, diapers again at this stage in life. Fast forward to that, we had another two years of court, so we continued to go to court because we only had temporary care in custody, and now it was, okay, we're going for full custody. So last year, we got awarded full permanent custody. We ended up signing over with the father custody of him. It's been three years now that baby Kay has been living with Melissa, her husband, and her son as a permanent member of the family. Melissa won and the one who is safer, happier, and better for it is her grandson, Baby K. Um, they, they are part of his life, but they're not full-time part of his life. V has moved back in once or twice. 
and then moved out. Even when she comes, she realizes that by observing that Kay has a bond with his grandpa and I that you can't break. And it's no one's fault. She was hurt at first as to, you know, why he loves us so much, why he loves us more than she thinks he loves her. But he doesn't understand. He's an innocent child in all of this. He was put into four different homes, bumping around in the year that he should have been bonding with a mother and father, right? And he didn't get that. The monumental shift in Melissa's world with the entry of her grandson is not lost on her or anyone in the family. Never taking for granted a single second that she has with her miracle grandson, who now lovingly calls her Mama. And so he's now three and a half years old. He does very well. He sleeps in our bed. He's, and I will tell you, at three and a half years old, from the trauma in his first year, he has abandonment issues. This child will say to me at night, are you going to protect me, Mama? Are you going to protect me from the monsters, Mama? Mama, you protect me, right? And every night I say to him in his ear, I whisper, Mama will protect you, right? Mama loves you, right? And he'll ask, Mama, you love me? Papa, do you love? He'll ask all of us. And no child that I know asks that. This child every day, do you love me? Do you like me? Do you like Kay? And uh, yes, I like Kay. Or we'll say, no, I don't like Kay. I love Kay. You know, he cannot be without us. And this situation being at home with him, you know, going to the daycare, it was very hard for him because he gets very sad and the babysitter has to, to let him know that we're not abandoning him because in his mind, it's that's again. And so it's like, we had to send videos. She has to call. We call and we're like, no, no, mama's coming. Papa's coming. So he's gotten used to that. He's gotten over those hurdles. But, you know, through all of this, he's had this one blanket that he calls Banky. And Banky has to be with him 24-7 when he wakes up, when he goes to bed, if he's in the bathroom, if he's showering, Blanky's on the floor. If he's downstairs, Blanky is downstairs. Banky goes everywhere because it's his one security that he had through every phase of his life. But, you know, he has, we see the issues. He cannot be without us. And V, his mom, has finally said, I don't think I will ever break that because I see, I see how he, he is with you guys and he's so attached. I could never do that to him, um, but we love him. We love him so much. He is the joy in our life. Now he's getting into that naughty phase, but you cannot stop smiling with this child. He'll do the, 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 he's so smart. He is so smart. He'll do the things that you'll never, ever think of in a, in a three-year-old and things he'll say. He knows his colors. He, he's an amazing child for the age that he's at. And I just hope that the issues that he had in the foster system doesn't carry through to him as an adult. Melissa is still doing everything she can for her daughter, V, to help her overcome her mental health issues and anxiety and one day, maybe, be a better and more active figure in baby K's life. His mother has been formed a few times She's now been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, anxiety, severe depression. So she does have mental issues. She has been in the hospital a few times to deal with it. She has been suicidal. So mom has a long road ahead of her. 
I try to video call mom when I can so her his mom and him can in bond. So he knows there's mummy. He does call her mummy. Whether or not he acknowledges that mummy is his mummy, I don't think so based on his reactions. But I try to create a bond for him. Dad is building his life there. I still don't think they're ready to be parents. We know that one day we'll have to face Kay maybe wanting to go live with mom and dad. And, you know, it'll hurt us because we've done, we've been attached now. Um, and we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And it's all about what's best for him. And that's how we live life. What's best for him, not what's best for his mom, which is my daughter or not what's best for dad. V has been dealing with her, with her mental health issues. And it's a battle. It's a long battle. She's got her ups and downs and, and we hope that she can put her life together for him. That's my one hope as a mother is that she can understand and put her life in order, build her life, build a steady life by herself, understand that she doesn't need a guy to be that strong person she can be so that Kay can grow up and, and be proud of, okay, my mom had challenges, but you know what? She turned around, you know, she, she eventually got it together. And that's, that's my hope for him. This has been something that I've buried for a long, long time. And, uh, and it's a joy to be able to raise him and, and, and see what he brings to us every day. That's, that's just such an emotional roller coaster, Melissa. I don't know how many times to tell you. I was welling up while you're telling the story. I mean, I've met your grandson and he's just adorable. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I can't imagine the stress constant stress it sounds like i mean hearing the story the way you've told it it sounds like you were constantly under stress and pressure and just pushed to the edge of the cliff and then pushed over the cliff and then caught right before you could crash land and then bought back up and then pushed back again it just sounds like a nightmare but you've survived you've done really very well for yourself and um you're very inspiring You've got your own business running. You've won custody of your grandson. So heroically, honestly, it is. How, how has this whole thing changed you? Do you feel like now your life has settled enough? And has this whole thing changed you or your perspective to everything that you approach in life? Yes. Before this situation, I think I felt that I controlled. I had some sort of control in life and in things that happen. And now I've become to realize that it's one day at a time. I don't take for granted that I will have him forever. The very few people that know the situation, because many people, I walk, I smiled while I had cried, tears underneath and I was falling apart. I was going out doing weddings and, uh, and talking to my customers and inside I was crushed and I was to pieces. And, you know, people will ask you, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm fine. And you put on a big smile on your face when you just came from like the most horrible day at court. But now I feel as though it's changed me because I don't have that perfect expectation anymore. I've also learned to put aside what happened with my daughter in the sense of our relationship. So she's now living on her own, trying to build her life. And I think I've learned to kind of not control my kids. I've not want to be in sort of control of the outcome, I should say. Not I've never been in control of their life, but control of the outcome. And I think I don't judge. I really don't judge anymore. I used to be, I used to want this perfect family, perfect life. And people think that's what I have on the outside. And it's far from it. I have so many so many things in the closet that I've just closed doors to deal with my emotions that way. And I just keep going. I just keep my head on 
my business is what carries my, like helps me hide those emotions. I don't stop to cry. Um, maybe sometimes I'll bottle up and I'll explode while I'm in the shower and I'll have a cry fest and I'll move on again. So I'm not as strong as you think I am, but you know, our destiny is written for some reason. Our destiny is already written. And I think things happen to put us into a certain circumstance. So this is preparing us for something else. And I've come to the understanding and acceptance that for some reason we were meant to be in Kay's life. We were meant to be his caregivers. God gave him in our lap to take care of him for we don't know how long. So now I don't learn to think he's gonna go to college. I just live to, is he gonna be with us a month? Is he gonna, so I don't take that for granted whatsoever. We keep him in a little bit of a bubble, taking consideration what he's been through in his life. So I look at life very, very differently. I try for my son to learn from my daughter's mistakes because he's 18. And uh, those are the ways that I think I've been different. I think it's made me, I would say stronger, but it's made me, I want to feel heartless sometimes because now things can come at me and I don't, I don't react as much, but it's, it's been an eye opener. And like, if I could find a way to advocate for other people, I would, it's an emotional time that I would not wish on my worst enemy. It's, it's not a, you know, not the things this child has been through. And I just want to be able to protect him and, and love him and have him know that he's loved. Now I'm nervous of how he's going to grow up. What kind of a young man is he going to turn into? Is he going to have emotional issues? Because he comes from two emotionally disturbed parents. So is he going to grow up with that? So we try to do things and nurture him. So right now we could put him on a path that that won't happen. So it's like he needs a constant reassuring that you love him. And he's only three and a half. So, you know, what is he going to grow up to be? I don't know. Well, that was amazing. My last question to you is, you know, the name of this podcast is Bulletproof Women. And it's all about wonderful women like you who have gone through so much that makes them stronger. And I do think you have become stronger. I wouldn't use the word heartless at all because life throws things at us. All of us end up getting jaded in some way or the other. So yes, some things won't phase us, but that doesn't mean that you're heartless. I wouldn't say that. But what in your opinion, what do you think is the meaning of being bulletproof for a woman today? I think the meaning of being a bulletproof woman is that us as women are made so differently than men. Our bodies are made to have babies and bounce back. We have monthly periods and we have to get on with the cramps and get on with it. We're expected to work, but be a homemaker. We're expected, even though the husband is home, we still have to be the one tending to the crying children. And so that has made us resilient. But what makes us bulletproof, which is very different from resilient, is the fact that as women, we put up with a lot of things in life, whether it's relationships from whoever, husbands, parents, children, we put up with a lot of forces that's against us. And somehow it's like we're wearing this invisible bulletproof vest and no matter what, we can get through it and, um, and we're okay and we're not wounded. Even though we might be wounded, it's like we were wearing a bulletproof vest. It just dents us. We say, ouch. And, and we're good to go again. And that's what I think makes us bulletproof women. Thank you very, very much. I can hear your grandson now calling for you. So I won't take up any more of your time. But thank you so much for taking this time out, carving this time out of your busy day for me and for this podcast. And I think it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Thank you very much. 
I've met Baby K and he's one of the cutest, happiest, sweetest little guys and he couldn't have had a stronger role model in his life than his grandmother Melissa. That brings us to the end of part two of Melissa's powerful experience. I'd like to thank Melissa once again for opening her heart and her experience to us through this podcast. If you have any questions for Melissa on her experience and would like to reach out to her for any advice, you can send an email to bulletproofwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Bulletproof Women Podcast with me. I know I've got a long way to go on production value and working out the kinks in editing, but practice makes perfect and I promise I'm practicing. I would greatly appreciate your support of my podcast by subscribing and writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the meantime, if you would like to contact us, submit your own story or be a guest on the show, you can find out more by visiting my brand new website, bulletproofwomen.ca or by sending an email to bulletproofwomenpodcast at gmail.com. For now, stay tuned for the next episode where I interview one of my very close childhood friends and her experience living with and overcoming scoliosis. Bye for now. Stay safe, stay strong and remember... You are bulletproof too.